Hey everyone, welcome to What Are You Watching? I'm Alex Withrow, joined by my best friend Nicholas Dosel. We are film freaks and filmmakers. How you doing there today, Maverick? I'm good. I'm excited to be here. Damn right. We have we're gonna have some fun today. Because today we're gonna talk, we're gonna dedicate an entire episode to talking about one of our favorite movies as individuals and as working partners, and that is Sofia Coppola's 2010 masterpiece, I will say, somewhere. Yeah. Who is Johnny Marco? It's a question our lead character, a Hollywood actor loner named Johnny Marco, played by Stephen Dorff, is asked by a reporter, and one writer-director, Sofia Coppola, doesn't let us hear the answer to, because it cuts away before he can answer. That's kind of what this movie is about. Who is this guy? We watch him, we follow him, we stay with him for a brief period of his life. We gather that Johnny has willingly rented a room at the famed Chateau Marimont in Hollywood, presumably to escape the boredom and the hardships of his Hollywood Hills mansion or Malibu <laughs> penthouse or wherever he lives. He's a guy who is adrift emotionally, that's pretty clear. He doesn't really want his life disrupted. I don't really think he knows what he wants out of life. I don't really think he's thinking about what he wants out of life. He's just going through the motions of life because he doesn't know what else to do. And that is initially, th that is disrupted. Initially, maybe a little annoyingly, but that turns into a pleasant disruption with his daughter, played by Elle Fanning, coming back into his life. Mm -hmm. And that's... That's a very crude summary, but this is not a movie that is concerned with plot. It does not have a plot, so... Not at all. To sit here and go down what it's about isn't... It's not really what we want to do. I'd much rather hear about kind of what you think about the movie, where you were the first time you saw it, what it means to you now, that stuff. Uh, I I just I adore this movie. I think this movie, um, for a lot of reasons, and I first watched this movie because of you... I think, as a matter of fact, this was your very first movie recommendation to me because we were getting ready to shoot my first short, There I Go, which you can find on my website, nicholasdosel.com. Yes, you can. And because th that movie particularly dealt with um, a guy just kind of wandering. In L.A., no less. In L.A., and um, very, very different uh, feel. For some reason, I think that my story you connected with it in some way that was similar to somewhere. So when I watched it from the first shot of the car, just going around in circles, I was just amazed at how captivated I was. And I'll tell you this, um, if that shot bothers you from the start of the movie, you might not like the rest. Just turn it off. Yeah. <laughs> just turn it off. Cause it, it's not going to get better for you, but that's a complete summation for, for that movie about this guy. It's just, driving around in circles, not going anywhere. The whole movie is a mood, and it's beautiful, and it's touching the way that I think life happens to us as individuals. It just it just creeps in and just happens. We don't know what's happening. We have these moments of clarity where we do, and Johnny has those throughout the movie, but then they always change, and then um, do they matter as much as when we were in that moment? I just think it's beautiful, and it's also um, it's a poem. Mm -hmm. I think this movie is one of those movies that feels and moves uh, like a poem, and that's almost like its own genre, but uh, I love that. That's personally my thing. So, yeah, so I have a very personal relationship to the movie because it was the beginning of our working relationship, and also because I didn't know that a movie could be done like this and have such a, an emotional effect. 
we th- that's one of the reasons why we wanted to talk about this movie first because we're gonna do deep dives into you know solo movies dedicate whole episodes to solo movies but when i recommended this movie to you i had come off two films really earrings and weight where somewhere was a huge influence on those particularly earrings the visual look of it yeah you could tell character isolation an attention to detail to sound that normally wouldn't get extra credit which i'm going to talk about in a bit genuinely one of the biggest influences of my filmmaking career matched maybe with shame which came out the next year that have things in common to me they're both about lost men who are disrupted by a woman coming back into their lives but the way that they're 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 totally different movies but somewhere's a big hugely influential i actually saw it in the theater and this was this was a stay through the credits movie for me probably because it ends so damn strong i was just wowed yeah by how it ended and this movie opened up a huge window for me to start being more patient with sl- for slow movies. Yeah. I'd seen slow movies. I had liked them because there's good slow and there's bad slow. There's good fast paced action and there's bad fast paced action. Yeah. It's a really delicate balance and this movie achieves the slower side of that balance. But like you said, if you're watching that first scene and you're going, you either don't get what they're doing, then just turn it off. Or if you do get what they're doing and you're bored, then yeah, like, here you go. This is about a guy who is emotionally driving around in circles. So if you can't hang with that, it's kind of fair that you can't hang with it and that's okay, but it's it's just a different sort of movie. This movie feels has always felt like to me that a European director made a movie about Los Angeles. Yeah. It feels very distinctly LA but also gorgeously European, which has been a huge influence on Sofia Coppola, European filmmakers. Now, I wanted to ask you. This was something I thought a lot about in 2010 and I still think about today. Who do you think Johnny Marco is, like, career-wise? If we had to pick a 2010 American actor, it doesn't have to be American, but a 2010 actor, who is that? Because when I watched the movie, and I rewatched it yesterday, it seems like to me like he's kind of a, not as rough and tough, but going for, like, a Willis, Schwarzenegger, Stallone, early 90s action guy. Because characters like this just don't really exist anymore because they're either superheroes. Yeah. And they're really, you know, and they have this clean-cut image in the public because we never really get the sense that Johnny Marco is a good actor. We just get the sense that he's well-known. There's no attention is given to, like, this guy is a thespian. It's just this dude is well-known, and he's in big enough movies that send him on Italian junkets. So I, I don't know. Like I don't know. This guy really only kind of reminds me of one particular type of 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 uh, career that I could think of. That's probably Bruce Willis. Yeah. But it would be, like, a very early 90s and this guy sort of seems to be like that, but it's so funny talking about it because I can't picture anyone else playing Johnny Marco but Stephen Dorff. Absolutely agree. We're going to get into that, but that is one of the things I've been thinking about this nonstop for 24 hours that still makes me love this movie because I cannot identify this guy because he doesn't really have an actor counterpoint. Not really. I imagine him as Willis, like he's had a hit, like Die Hard's a hit. Then he's like five years in after the hit and he's doing the last Boy Scout. He's like, or he barely looks yeah. like he's able to like say his lines or like die hard with a vengeance, which the opening scenes of that are, are some of the most convincing hangover scenes ever. And I'm like, I think Willis might have turned one on last night. Like, I don't know. He's sitting there like holding his hand with his watch backwards. But I love that scene. So Johnny Marco essentially is a unique characterization, I feel. He's he seems like a Hollywood archetype but his emotion distinguishes him as this unique guy you know we can tell like okay this is fiction 
but yeah, you you kind of know him. You 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 understand who he is. You have you have a certain relationship to him, but you can't put your finger on it. Yeah, which is I think the beauty of this movie. You can't put your finger exactly on on what it is that you know and and what touches you about it, but it, it sure does. The movie captures isolation and internal dread better than most movies I can think about, certainly modern movies. I mean, not a few, but a few years ago, I, I said this movie was in my top 20 of all time. And it still might be if I was going to go back and crunch those numbers, because I think this movie is made for a certain type of person, perhaps like you and I, who were just willing to go along on the journey. This is never a movie that was going to be popular. It, it did not make a lot of money. It was well-reviewed critically. It didn't get any major award nominations or anything. And I think that's because it's it's a long sit. It's 97 minutes and you feel all of those minutes. But if you're willing to go on it on the ride, then maybe you can have a little more appreciation for it. And going through this pastime, I really wanted to highlight the sound in particular because it was something that I noticed a lot. The sound of his Ferrari is almost like another character. Yeah. It's so good and specific. And you know right away, you're like, that is a, it's a nice car. I'm not a car guy. It's very, it's given a lot of distinction. So is the way he handles his cigarettes. We don't often hear like if someone's rolling a cigarette around their fingers or taking a drag of it, you don't often hear them in movies. But early on, especially before we meet Elle Fanning, the sound of his car and his cigarettes are really enhanced because those are the only things he has. Mm -hmm. That's all he has in the world. And we see long passages of him. We get to spend an entire day with him when he's sitting by the pool, drinking a beer and having a smoke, going up to his room, having six smokes and a beer and not doing anything. That's his fucking day. He just sits there in one of the most like well-known and kind of lavish, infamous places in the world, Chateau Mermont. He has access to anything and everything. This this could easily become a drug movie, a booze movie. Mm-hmm. It's not a drug movie. Like he has access to painkillers because he breaks his arm, but he's not abusing them. He's not really abusing alcohol. He has a good relationship with his daughter. Good in terms of when she's around, he clearly loves her. He's not been as present in the past, but this is one of the best movies I've seen to capture all that shit. I don't know where I am in life. I don't know what's going on. And I really, really appreciate it for that reason. It lets you see into uh, this guy's life and even Elle Fanning's life, because I think the relationship that, I mean, that is the heart of the movie is is their relationship. But to be able to show that and just let it be, to not have to make a point, to not have to say that this is right or this is wrong, or this is what we need as a happy ending or a sad ending. To just let it be, because I think that's those are the questions that are raised that make us reflect on how we look at life. Mm-hmm. Certain things that we know, like there, are, I mean, I think that's it's one of my favorite things about films in general is what can you give me? And it's one of the things that you and I try to do with when we're when we're creating our own is how can we show something and let that be so the audience can take that and make it their own. What does that mean to you? And for me, one of my favorite things that is personal for me is um, Chris Pontius in this movie. Oh, God, I love him. I, like, I remember hanging out with my dad uh, when I was younger in maybe some not-so-savory places, but nothing, nothing wrong going on, nothing weird. But you could tell, like, I don't know, Dad, like, who's this guy? 
And, you know, he's just sort of this dude. He's talking to Elle Fanning about asking if her ballet teacher's an alcoholic, yeah. you know. And he's and, But they're putting stickers on a guitar. It's so sweet. And apparently all that was improvised. And it feels real. I had only seen him and still have only seen him in that and Jackass. And that's like, I see well, him. And that's it, really. <laughs> come in there and I go, oh, this isn't going to work. Like, this is this is weird. And he's so charming. He's just a guy. A hanger honor to the to the star, you know? And you can tell, like, because obviously he must live there because, like, he's always crashing on the couch. Or maybe he doesn't live there. He certainly stays there. And it's just his dad's bud. I, I love that. Yeah, and we talked about this a little bit on the Richard Linklater podcast about how he often subverts our expectations. So watching this movie, when I first saw it, I went, oh, okay, he broke his arm so he can get addicted to opioids. That's where we're, okay. Or, oh, okay, he's got this shady jackass actor. This guy's going to, like, do something bad. He's going to be a shady guy. He's going to, and it's just not that. It's not that at all. It's much more subtle than that. It's a really smart decision by Coppola to cast someone it's a bit of stunt casting and it just works so let's let's do the sophia conversation sophia coppola famed daughter of francis ford coppola is just one of the best and most important filmmakers we have right now yeah 100 percent. i appreciate each of her movies for different reasons and we'll go through them real quickly we have virgin suicides in 99 an amazing debut that a lot of people still really fight for yeah a lot of film twitter people still really get behind that movie Really brutal movie, like emotionally brutal. I I appreciate it, like I said. Yeah, I love that movie. Her follow-up, Lo- Lost in Translation, which is, I mean, talk about avoiding a sophomore slump. Jesus, she wins the Oscar for it. It's a sensation. It's an incredible movie. It kind of defines a style of movies that a lot of people try to replicate in the 10, 15 years after, and no one really lives up to it. Yeah. Marie Antoinette, which you gotta go into with an open mind, and it's just a pop bubblegum. Dude, it's so much fun. Weird, one-of-a-kind movie. It is. It's, uh, yeah, it's a lot of fun. I really, not one I necessarily liked when I first saw it, and now own it and watch it and really enjoy it. Somewhere in 2010, The Bling Ring in 2013, which I have developed a really fond appreciation for over the years, the Beguiled in 2017. Yes, The Beguiled. <laughs> do you like The Beguiled? <laughs> I do, and I have to stand up for it because that movie was just as set. I've, I've, it's been a long time since I've seen a movie that has been um, such widely crucified <laughs> than that movie. People hate that movie. Yeah, we can definitely have a brief Beguiled tangent. Um, Real quick, she has On the Rocks, which is supposed to come out this year. We're deep in the throes of COVID-19 quarantine, so no one knows what's going on with movies. It's an Apple Plus movie, so I don't know. I would assume she would insist on it being released theatrically, but I I don't know if Apple Plus is doing that. So she's reteaming with Bill Murray, On the Rocks. It's going to supposed to come out some point this year, but let's go off track and do the Beguiled a little bit. That's a remake of of a Clint Eastwood movie from, I believe, 1971. I will say that I think it is her least effective film. I do like things about it. The look of it, I think, is its best attribute. I think it looks stunning. I will say that I've seen it once. I don't necessarily have a desire to go back and revisit it. However, that was what I said about Marie Antoinette and The Bling Ring the first time I saw those. Yeah. Some of these best craftspeople like Kubrick, you go back and rewatch their stuff and they get better as you rewatch them. So... I'll go, I'll go give The Beguiled another look. Tell me, uh, I, I like you taking this stance of defense for it, so tell me about it. <laughs> I, I definitely do, just because um, 
Like I remember I saw the movie in theaters and it was like a packed theater. I've never heard so many people talk during a movie. Like they like they they were talking at it. They weren't like having a conversation with each other, but they would be like, "What? No. What is this?" And I'm just sort of watching all that and I'm like, "You know, I don't care who you are. You might not like it, but if you're talking at the movie at a movie theater, it's doing something to you." And th- <laughs> th- that to me is where, you know, that's where it lives. People were walking out, people were and I just remember thinking, because Sophia has such a great way, I think it's all of her movies, where she lets you sit in the muck of everything. It's not even muck, because it's beautiful. She doesn't ever really go too dark. It may be virgin suicides, but it's comfortable. Like You can, you can stay here and, and live here, and even in The Beguiled, like some of those just those moments where the women are just fawning over Colin Farrell in their own little ways, you know, his little scheming like tactics to get just to stay there. I don't know. I really like that movie and I'm a champion for it because I do see a lot of the hate that it gets. And I I cannot stand to let there be a world where Sofia Coppola gets that much hate. (laughs) Yeah. I'm with you. It did. It didn't deserve Part of the, we're definitely going to do a podcast, a whole episode about this, is the trailer for that movie, which makes it look like it is some brazen suspense thriller where they have captured this guy and, like, torture him. And it's not that. No, it's not. It's a very exciting trailer, but a very bad representation of the movie. And I think it wasn't really marketed well, but it didn't deserve to be. It, it was pretty crucified, like, when it was released. It was pretty. Yeah. It was. It really was. Okay. Where do you think Somewhere stands among Sofia Coppola's body of work? Is it is it her best film? Is it your favorite? I very proudly stand in the camp of this being her best work. I absolutely love Somewhere. I think probably Lost in Translation is credited as her unanimous best. That's fair. I think this is a great, you hate the term spiritual sequel, but spiritual successor oh. to Lost in Translation. I think it fits well in the same mood and vibe and tone. But I do think it's it's her best. It's the one I've seen the most. You know, this is a very funny way to kind of, you know, and it's also subjective too. And, you know, who knows what I'm going to like say if you ask me this like five years later. I'm just going to start by saying it is my favorite Sofia Coppola movie. Though I don't I don't know if I would put it in the camp of the best. I think I think I would probably have to go with Lost in Translation for that right now. Yeah, and I'm probably a little alone on my somewhere island, and that's totally fine. I get I'll swim to the island any day though. <laughs> I don't mean to disparage any of the other films at all. No, no, not at all. I really I really love Lost in Translation. I kinda wanna know what is the one you've seen the most or the one you enjoy watching the most. I get a lot of fun out of the bling ring. Again, I've seen somewhere the most time, but that's that's usually to study it and to really pay attention to it. But the bling ring, I think, is very absurd on purpose at 90 minutes. It just kind of moves. And I didn't know if you had a f- most rewatchable. Oh, I do. Okay. The Beguiled? <laughs> no, no, no. It's not The Beguiled. <laughs> you old so-and-so. I think um, <laughs> Marie Antoinette. <laughs> I could watch that movie all the time. I bet if we did a poll, that would probably get her most rewatchable. And it's, again, like, you have to understand when you sit down for one of her movies, you're in for a different vibe. Whether that is, like, pop bubblegum, which is what she's going for that, or, like, a slow sit, slow and patient. So, the point is, she's a great filmmaker. I can't wait to see On the Rocks. Let's do the Steven Dorff conversation. <laughs> because Steven Dorff, I don't know if you know this, is actually low-key one of my favorite actors of his kind and one of my favorite character actors 
he's had a really interesting career full of a lot of hits and misses. First thing I saw him in was Judgment Night in 1993, a movie that I love. <laughs> then he has a lot of hit or misses after that. He's in I Like I Shot Andy Warhol, Blood and Wine, which I just watched for the first time. And then, of course, Blade in 1998 is his huge breakout. Yeah. And he kind of becomes Steven Dorff and everyone goes, okay, we've we've seen this kid, TV shows in the 80s and 90s, and now, now he's made a name for himself. And then, I don't know, it doesn't really launch him the way we thought it would. He's in Cecil B. Demented, which is a wild film, but then... He kind of goes to movies like Deuce is Wild and Fear.com, which are forgettable. And then he has brief turns that I really like in World Trade Center and Public Enemies. But then we get to somewhere and it's the performance of his career. Yeah. She wrote it for him in mind and it it works as well as Bill Murray works in Lost in Translation. It, yeah. It just feels like right place, right time, perfect performance. And it's poised to be this kind of huge Hollywood comeback career and then the only really negative thing I have to say on this podcast episode is that it doesn't really work out for him that way. And that fucking sucks because I love Steven Dorff and I love him in this movie. And it just didn't really take off for him in the way that I thought it would. And maybe that's because the movie wasn't that popular. And don't get me wrong, in the past few years, he's done great because he is fucking astounding in the third season of True Detective. He is great in that show. Might even be the best thing he's done. I don't know. I love him as Johnny Marco. What are your thoughts? I always kind of have this conversation when it comes to certain performances from actors because there's so many good actors, but is this a role that anyone else could do? Can you picture anyone else playing it? And this is one of those cases where I can't. I, I mean, there is just something about him, everything about him, his hair, where it's receding. <laughs> there's just this vibe that he gets, and he's also a really, really sweet guy. Like, that's the thing is, like, he lives a lifestyle, but the way he is with his daughter and, you know, not much changes for him. There's a, there's one particular moment that I think really solidified uh, my feelings towards this character is when he receives the award in Italy. Mm -hmm. and he's in the front row with Elle Fanning, and he just walks up the steps, and he just gives her this look, and it's just a smile, and... Man, like, it's everything. I rewound that scene three times yesterday for that that look. That look. Sophia had them hang out a lot before they shot, and that comes through. Yeah. You make a good point at how nice he is, because he, he is distracted with women. He doesn't, that's like his biggest crutch, but he's never mean to anybody. He's never the Michelle Monaghan scene, and I... I really like that scene because the smile they're forced to do, you get to see Johnny Marco become a movie star. It's like, that's a movie star smile. But in the way she's talking to him, it's kind of like he doesn't even, he's kind of looking at her like, did, wait, did I, did we hook up? Like, I don't, I don't remember this at all. Yeah. And that's not a nice thing, obviously. Let's be clear. Like, it's not nice. No, no. But he's not going out of his way to be an explosive egomaniacal Hollywood dick like we see in movies a lot again subverting expectations he's not melodramatic he's not a diva he's kind of like oh I have to go I forgot I had to go to that junket today let me like put on boots that don't have laces and like a t-shirt that I've been wearing for four days in a row no no problem and then we have Elle Fanning who my thoughts on her in this movie this is the performance and I have to be fair I have to couple it with Super 8 which came out the following year this and Super 8 it, it turned her from Dakota Fanning's sister to Elle Fanning to me. And I went, whoa, I have to watch out for her because the subtlety in her somewhere performance, like the way that she gets him 
and she just gets that this is a flawed guy and like look at the dichotomy the juxtaposition of her cooking him eggs benedict uh, to him cooking pasta for himself pasta very easy to cook like just simple yeah noodles and like marinara sauce is not hard and he makes the whole damn thing and it's like he doesn't know what he's doing and she makes maybe the best looking eggs benedict of all time and then the italy sequence is really important because she goes you know they have like the gelato she goes to bed yeah i love that scene and then he invites the woman over and the next morning l fanning the look is like this is our time this isn't her time and he clearly looks like oh i can't be doing this anymore let's let's just get the hell out of here let's go yeah those are such subtle looks that I don't know. They feel very believable. So I really like her in this movie. I, I mean, she's on another level in the neon, neon demon. She went somewhere yeah. really special for that. So that might be my favorite work of hers. But she's really captivating in somewhere. She's very, very captivating. And one thing about her, too, because it's also tough to kind of rate someone her age because the, the, the actor that so many little kids are. And then their transition to like where she is now, though I have to say I can't think of a more seamless and better transition any actor has had. Even in, in, in somewhere, it's a very mature uh, performance. Mm-hmm. And I think that's just because she's probably a mature kid. Yeah. And she just, you know, like you can't really fake that. Like you just you just have a certain kind of way. And um, it translates really well for acting. But uh, yeah, you're 100% right. Those little looks that, that they have for each other, that's that's the way that you you know who they are. You know how they get each other. And again, similar to me with my dad, that was things for him and I. Like, I would just get certain things that he would do. Didn't really, like, certain things would bother me, but they weren't dramatic. Mm-hmm. They were just like, really? Okay. Dad. Do you feel comfortable telling us, like, one such story? My dad would see me every, like, maybe three or four times a year when I was a kid growing up. I would always get really excited for those times. Like, they were very, very special days, like, when my dad would come and see me. Yeah. And then it didn't matter what we did. Like, sometimes we would just, like, you know, we would go see a movie or um, oftentimes we would just sit on the couch and fall asleep. And then we'd wake up and then he'd be like, all right, I got to go. We didn't do anything for the whole entire day. We just slept. And, I, and, and, and the scene where she's um, where they kind of fall asleep at the Chateau Marmont, you know, that was me and my dad. Like we didn't do anything. We were eating, you know, you know, and then just fall asleep. And then it's like, all right, I got to go. All right. Like this was great. We just let it be what it was. And then, you know, you can always think more. Right. Sure. But in the moment of what those things are, like, because I was much more mature than my dad was, so I would be the one cooking better food. Right. And, you know, things like that. So that's very relatable to me. But I love that you brought up the spaghetti bit because (laughs) that's one of these things about this movie. It's like if you're not paying attention to – how beautiful her eggs benedict are Mm -hmm. and how much of a mess his spaghetti is and you're not like receiving that yeah this isn't the movie for you yeah because that's so telling and so like you have a react at least i do i have a reaction to those things and, and it's beautiful in that regard, we're going to have a little fun with the Oscars here. This did not get nominated for anything, which wasn't a surprise at the time. It was a surprise to me that the movie didn't do better. I thought the goodwill of Lost in Translation and Marie and Antoinette would get more people in the theater. 
Somewhere also has one of like the great all-time movie trailers, so that is representative of the film. So I was bummed that it didn't, but when the nominations came around, I wasn't surprised. I would personally, I would have definitely given this nominations for picture, director, original screenplay, actor. We, we I totally failed to mention this when we were talking about Stephen Dorff. He deserves a nomination for that scene, that tearful confession on the phone to his baby mama toward the end of the movie. I'm not even a... Oh, it's a good scene. Yeah, I'm not even a fucking person. And then she just <laughs> blows him off. And it's like, you know, maybe you should try volunteering. It's like, oh, Jesus. Yeah. It's like the realest moment of this guy's life. And he just gets blown off. I take that scene over just about any scene of Colin Firth's in the King's Speech. Or I like Eisenberg and Social Network, Franco and 27 Hours. Javier Bardem, Beautiful, is probably my favorite of the nominees. But yeah, I would have definitely had Steven Dorff in there. And maybe a supporting actress for Elle Fanning. But yeah, I think looking back, you know, because again, like I, I'm, a, I'm a very big fan of the conversation of looking back and seeing what would have been in there. Considering that like the way that I feel about Steven Dorff in that movie, it's just sort of like no one else could have done it. Or they could have, but it wouldn't have worked like the way it did. And so I, I think I would have given him a nomination. And yeah, L, fuck it. Yeah, <laughs> why not? <laughs> All right, I have, some, I have a few fun random shout-outs here. We cannot mention somewhere without mentioning the late, great cinematographer, Harris Savitas. Mm. His, oh my God, the look of this guy's movies just tapped into my soul. He shot The Game, Elephant, Jerry, Birth, Zodiac. He died before finishing work on The Bling Ring. That movie is dedicated to him. And he shot Somewhere, which is... It's tough. Zodiac is a fucking good-looking movie. But I really love... The cinematography of Somewhere is kind of like a character. There is a, a visual beauty and also a kind of detachment to it. I'm thinking of that really long zoom away when they're sitting by the pool. Oh, I love that. Just a shout-out to Harris Savitas and his craft, and he is very well missed. Very well missed. And I also want to take a shout out to um, the music videos that he's done throughout his career. For a lot of, you know, talking about movies as much as we do, but when it comes to cinematography, music videos, you have shot in, like probably my favorite, not not just blowing smoke, but <laughs> um, your music videos are 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 like above and beyond. I think what a music video is probably known for well thank you i think it also kind of speaks to the style of him working with sophia because he's worked on red hot chili peppers Coldplay, chris isaac radiohead um madonna nine inch he did the music video for closer for nine inch nails which is probably regarded as probably one of the coolest music videos out there and oh hell yeah he's got a point of view musically that comes through i think in his cinematography uh we lost him so young it's it's a shame but Somewhere captures some of his best work. And yeah, you can have a fun YouTube Harris Savitas rabbit hole watching those music videos for sure. Yeah. Speaking of music, this movie features amazing tunes from Phoenix. Uh, Sofia Coppola is, of course, married to Phoenix lead singer Thomas Mars. My favorite song of theirs is Love Like a Sunset Parts 1 and 2, which are featured very heavily in this movie. The, it ends on that really kind of big beat in Love Like a Sunset Part 2, one of my favorite endings of the past Definitely since this movie was released, so great music. Great music, and I think it might have to be um, because it's the full song, but uh, the Foo Fighters, My Hero, and just watching him watch two girls do a pole dance, 
because that song is such a rock and roll song and this is not a rock and roll scene. <laughs> no, and I mean, Jesus, he does that. That's like one of the first scenes. That's like a minute four. And then he falls asleep. And then that day that I described of him like smoking by the pool, coming back in his room, then he ends up just calling them again. Yeah. It's like, what? So again, if you're watching, like she knows exactly what she's doing with that scene. Yes, she does. It's supposed to be absurd and ridiculous. Oh, God, it's great. Another shout out, uh, great use of a single location. In this case, the Chateau Mermont. It's not like the whole film takes place there, but a lot of it. One more quick shout out. Benicio Del Toro makes a beautiful cameo in this movie, playing himself. Apparently, he was just in the Chateau that night. And Sophia was like, do you want to be in here? Well, here's what we're doing. And he goes, yeah, sure. So like, those are his clothes. You know, that's just him. And why I want to bring that up is because the one time I saw Benicio Del Toro in LA, because I didn't see him once, this was summer of 2015, and he was dressed damn near identical to how he looks in this movie. He had the jeans, the blazer, t-shirt, trucker hat. So it's probably just like how he dresses. He's awesome. Final thoughts on Somewhere? When we dive into a movie like this, where it's like the whole entire podcast and conversation is about this one thing especially when we talk about like what it means to us. I think we would just like to hear what any of you guys out there think about this. Like whether you've had the same reactions to somewhere, tell us what movies make you feel the way somewhere makes us feel. Yeah. I want to find other people who like this movie as well. And if, I mean, wow, if we, if you listening to this is like encourage you to watch it, then go check it out. Cause we haven't really ventured too far into spoiler territory to end here. We're going to go to our namesake segment. What are you watching? Or we pick any movie we want to draw a little attention to for any reason whatsoever. All right. Um, so I, I'm choosing to stay a little bit on theme yet again. Uh, Paris, Texas, uh, directed by Wim Wenders. I suppose it's on theme because it does deal with the um, a child and the relationship to their parents in that way. Though I don't think these movies could be more different. Paris, Texas is just it, it's an astounding piece of work. Written by Sam Shepard, Harry Dean Stanton, and, and Wim Wenders, who is primarily a European filmmaker. Got a lot in there that I really, really love. And so that's my that's my recommendation. Paris, Texas. It's so funny you mention that. I just watched Wings of Desire yesterday. Famously remade as City of Angels starring Nicolas Cage. Yes. <laughs> but the original is much better. <laughs> Great choice. Another movie that is not afraid, that embraces showing the passage of time and showing people being yep i'm kind of staying on brand too because i just rewatched this the passenger by michelangelo antonioni 1975 which we both this is not a movie that i wholeheartedly endorse it's not an a plus movie for me but there's a lot of interesting things here and the reason why i wanted to pick it for this is because antonioni is one of coppola's biggest influences she thanked him in her oscar speech when she won her oscar for writing lost in translation oh that's amazing Yeah, and this movie is about a guy, Jack Nicholson, who assumes the identity of a dead man without really knowing what kind of shit that dead guy was into. But even that one sentence logline makes it sound much more thrilling than it is. This is not a thrilling movie. Yeah. It's an hour and 26 minutes. You feel every single one of them. Far be it for me to say it could... It could move faster, be shorter. Antonioni knew exactly what he was doing. It's very deliberately paced. It does lead to a truly masterful, unbroken camera shot that ties the entire movie together and really makes the whole movie worth it, even though it's a tough sit. So 
you if you're a fan of Sofia Coppola, you can absolutely see the influence of The Passenger and other Antonioni and Winders films in her work. So I think those are two really strong recommendations, especially for people who are a fan of this movie of somewhere. The one thing I'll say about The Passenger, because I don't know if we'll ever get a chance to talk about that again, um, the sequence in which Jack Nicholson decides to obtain the identity of this dead man and the way that Ant- Antonioni goes about showing us that completely flipped the script on how I view filmmaking. I mean, it it, it changed everything. I, I, I saw that scene and I was like, there's a whole world of ways to do things. I, I still think of that, that scene. Anytime I'm, I'm writing or how we're going to figure out what to do, something cool, that's the first thing I think of. All right. And that's it for us. We really appreciate you listening. Hopefully, giving you some new insight into somewhere. If you haven't seen it, go check it out or rewatch it again. And then check out some Antonioni or Wim Winders. And we really appreciate you listening and have fun watching. Hey everyone, thanks again for listening. You can check out my flicks and my movie blog at alexwithrow.com. NicholasDostal.com is where you find all of Nick's film work. Nicholas Ali does the music for our show. I've made a few music videos with Nick. He's a great guy and we love his tunes. Big thank you to him. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at whatareyouwatchingpodcast at gmail.com. Next episode is one I'm really looking forward to. We're going to talk about my favorite character actor, the great Christopher McDonald, and I'll share a fun story about when Chris Mack and I hung out in New York a few years ago. Stay tuned. <laughs>